The scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It can be found on page 909 in the Black Bibles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, McKees. Man, y'all were two for two on those geographic names. That was impressive. Did it, they did in the first service, too. It's amazing. Uh, y'all want to, before I, before I start, take a, uh, just a brief second to, to welcome some guests. Uh, we have some brothers and sisters here with us from New Orleans, from a sister church, St. Rock Church in New Orleans. Um, it is, it's an honor and privilege to have y'all with us. We are grieved with you about what is happening in your city and praying that the Lord blesses the rebuilding of your city and uh, it really is an honor to have y'all worshiping with us together. So thanks for giving us that privilege this morning. Um, We are talking through, we're going through um, the book of Acts and today we're going to talk about what it would mean for the church to be a family. Um, Last week we looked at kind of who made up this family in the early church. And if you remember, it was a bunch of sinners and failures and people who kind of had spotty history. But what's amazing is that we see God take people like that, people like me, frankly, people like us, and he makes them into a family. And so what I want us to begin imagining as a church is what would it look like for us more and more to live in that way, to be God's family? So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Lord, we need your help in all things, including understanding your word. And we pray that, uh, that your spirit would help us now um, to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. Would you apply the scriptures to our hearts and to our lives? And we pray that in doing that, that we might see Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. 
<clears throat> have you ever come against something in your life and wondered, is anything going to change? I have felt this, honestly, in pastoral ministry a lot. Kind of talking about the same stuff. With, I was a campus minister for seven years at UT in Austin. And just bumping up against the same things over and over and over and over again with students. And I would find myself sometimes getting in my car wondering, is anything is this doing anything? Is, and what, I, and what I'm doing right now, is it doing anything? Is change going to happen? Or if you're like me, maybe you've wondered that in your own life. You keep bumping up against things that you are still struggling with, that you thought you'd be over by now, and you keep bumping into it, and you wonder, is change going to happen? Is anything going to be different? Or you look at things that are happening in our world, like in Haiti, Afghanistan, or things happening in our own country with division and partisanship. We wonder, is anything going to change? Is anything going to ever change the political landscape that we're in right now? I, I remember having a conversation kind of like this with a friend of mine who grew up in Mexico. It was about seven years ago. We were on a road trip together. We were kind of telling our stories, and he was telling me what it was like growing up in his neighborhood in Mexico, and he was grieving and lamenting to me that he, his neighborhood had gotten to a point now where he didn't feel safe taking his children back there. He was telling me how dangerous it had become and how there was so much corruption at kind of every level of authority and I'm asking him, well, what about, you know, what about the police? What about, he's like, dude, the police, you know. He, he's every single level of authority, there's corruption. And I finally am just say, okay, well, what's going to change? Like, what, can, can anything happen that's going to make this different? And he thought for like one second and then said, it has to be the spirit of God. The spirit of God will make a change. And it kind of, I mean, when he said that, it hit me and, I, and it made me stop and think, do I actually believe that? Do I actually believe that the Spirit of God can make a change in situations that feel helpless? And maybe that's where you are now or have felt. And one place we feel that particularly is in our homes. Helpless. Is anything going to change? Can anything change to get my marriage back on track, loving one another again? Can anything change with my, my grandkids who seem so far from the Lord or my children? But what we'll see in this passage are these Christians, the early church, 120 of them, they've been at home and they've been at home feeling helpless wondering if anything is going to change. Jesus has given them this crazy, big, global mission, and nothing's happened yet. They're wondering, is anything going to change? But what we'll see <clears throat> is that change doesn't happen how we often imagine it. Remember, in Acts 1, even as Jesus is ascending into heaven, 
the disciples think that change is going to come by their ascent to political power. You know, they're asking Jesus, are you now going to establish your kingdom here with Israel? But change doesn't happen through our ascent. Change happens through the ascent of Jesus and his sent Holy Spirit. Acts 2 is a fulfillment of a promise Jesus makes 50 days earlier. In John 16, Jesus promises that His disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, here's the promise. If I go, I will send him to you. For the helpless at home, there is a helper. And Jesus promises to send this helper. And so that's who we're going to look at and what we're going to consider this morning. First, who is the Holy Spirit? Second, who is the Holy Spirit for? Or because my mom watches this live stream, for whom is the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> and what does the Holy Spirit do? Who's the Holy Spirit for? What does he do? So first, who is the Holy Spirit? I want you to see and to know the Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is not some kind of energy or power that if you can just get yourself in the right posture or emotional state that you'll get access to this power. The Holy Spirit's not the force. Sorry, Star Wars fans. The Holy Spirit is a person. And man, I... I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half. I'd love to preach like four sermons on Pentecost because this is like, there's so many Old Testament threads that are kind of dangling in this passage. But what I want you to see and know to make sense of this is that the Holy Spirit is all throughout the Old Testament revealed as a person. Second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The second verse of the Bible, we see God's Spirit hovering over the darkness and the chaos of this world. And into that, he brings life. The Holy Spirit brings forth life and is a person who does that work. We see the Holy Spirit all throughout the book of Exodus. God's Spirit is associated in the book of Exodus with fire. Moses speaking to the burning bush. The pillar of fire by night leading God's people through the wilderness. The fire and the smoke that would go and fill the tabernacle, the place of meeting with God into the holy of holies. This consuming fire of God's presence would reside in the Holy of Holies and one day out of the year, one person could go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice in the presence, the fiery presence of God. But what I want you to see here in this passage, in verse two, we see a rushing wind like the wind of Genesis 1-2 over the chaotic darkness that now God's people find themselves in Acts 2. And a new creation is going to come out of this as well. We see the same Holy Spirit fire that 
fills the Old Testament, now filling his people in verse 3, resting on each Christian. Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit is coming true. So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the presence of God with you. You know why this is so good? Every other world religion tells you something to the effect of God is hidden. God is hidden and there's things that you need to do to find him. There's a certain moral life or code that you need to live by and if you do that, then you will ascend and get to God. Or you will reach enlightenment. But the God of the Bible is the opposite. Because the one who's hidden in the Bible is not God, it is us. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They hide. And what does God do with hidden people? He comes looking for them. He comes looking. And in this story, with frightened people living in the midst of an oppressive nation, God sends his spirit. And this spirit begins creating something new. And it's so beautiful how familial God's language is when he talks about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit in John 14, he says, the Holy Spirit will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. You are not going to be without a family. What God does is he makes us a family. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The God of the Bible is not far removed. There are no orphans in the house of God. Fire that was once separated in the holy of holies now because of Jesus' ascent, because of his work on the cross, because of his righteous life, his resurrection and his ascension now we have access to that same God by his spirit. One of the heroes in the faith for me is a man named Saint Basil of Caesarea, fourth century Asian theologian, writes this about the Holy Spirit, one of the main authors of the Council of Nicaea. He says, he is like a sunbeam whose grace is present to the one who enjoys him as if he were present to such a one alone. And still the Holy Spirit illuminates land and sea and is mixed with the air. Just so indeed, the Spirit is present to each one who is fit to receive him, as if he were present to him alone. And still, the Holy Spirit sends out his grace that is complete and sufficient for all. The things that participate in him enjoy him to the extent that their nature allows, not to the extent that this power allows. Sorry, I misspoke. I said he, the Holy Spirit, illuminates land and sea. He was using the illustration of light. The Holy Spirit is like light that we enjoy, that the land and sea enjoys and is shown upon as if it was just for them. And the point of this, what I'm saying is that in the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God is available to you. Not a piece or a portion, but the fullness of God himself. The Holy Spirit is given to us 
in grace. And so who is the Holy Spirit for? Or for whom is the Holy Spirit? We get a clue, a big clue, with these languages. All kinds of people is who the Holy Spirit's for. Think about it. If you were driving down the street and you looked at a sign and it was in Italian, who's that advertisement for? Not you, unless you speak Italian. Okay. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes upon the people of God, all of these different languages. Who is the gospel for? Is it just for the Galileans? No. This is like every known place in the world to the author of Acts, Luke. All of these people who are gathered constitute the three known continents to Luke. Africa's there. Europe is there. Asia is there. What I want you to see, again, another dangling thread from the Old Testament is that this is a redemption of the story from Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, all the people of the earth are gathered at Babel. They have one language. And they say to themselves, let's ascend. Sounds familiar to the disciples, Acts 1. Let's ascend to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. And God in his, it is in his mercy that he confuses their language and scatters them. And it's in his mercy because their mission was a godless mission. If you read Genesis 11, they don't talk about God at all. What they talk about is themselves. And what what godlessness produces is the elevation of the self. Because that's the opposite of God. Here's what's beautiful about believing in a triune God. We believe that God is three persons, one God. So God in his essence is a relationship, which means that God can actually be love. He's not not one God with one person. He's one God, three persons. And so God in his essence, the father is interested in and caring for the son. The son is interested in and caring for the Father, the Spirit is interested in and caring for the Father and the Son. It's this beautiful dance of self-giving love. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, which I wholeheartedly recommend to you if you're looking for a book. He says, if I am to be anything like the outgoing and outward-looking Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit must take my eyes off myself. So what the Holy Spirit does The Holy Spirit comes to believers in Jesus, but immediately the Holy Spirit moves Jesus' followers towards the nations. This is so key, and this is beautiful because it's God's plan. One of the things we like to talk about in Presbyterianism is covenants, covenant theology, and it can sound real highfalutin sometimes when we start talking about covenant theology. All it means is that God from the beginning of the Bible keeps his promises. And he doesn't have plan B and plan C. It's all plan A. And so 
God whose plan A has been always, always to reach his people, to come after people who are hiding. So you know what he does immediately after Genesis 11, after the story of Babel, the next thing that we see in the story of the Bible, God doesn't say, well, nations are out of here, they're all confused, I'm done with the nations. No, Genesis 12 happens. And God comes to one particular person, Abram, and this is what he says. He makes a covenant with Abram. Before the covenant, he says, Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is making good on that covenant promise to Abram here. The story of the Bible is, God's, is the continuing story of God keeping his promise of making all things new, blessing the nations through the seed of Abram, through Jesus. But here's what's, I think, beautiful, is that this story now, this is Babel new and improved, Babel prime, the way it was supposed to be, because here's what happens. The languages aren't homogenized. I mean, the miracle, if you like think about, the miracle could have been flipped, like all these people from Africa and Asia and Europe, they're all gathered, and they hear Peter preaching in, in Peter's tongue, and everybody hears Galilean. The miracle could have been all these people from other places hearing one language. And so to be a Christian, you've got to like get with this culture and this language and this people. But the opposite happens. Instead, the truth of the gospel is proclaimed in every known tongue. And this too, my friends, is part of the mission of God that we see throughout the scriptures that God is for the nations and that each nation, each culture brings with it beauty. Beauty that declares our unified and diverse God. Our God is one in three, right? One God, three persons, which means he is united, but he is also diverse. And in our diversity, our cultural diversity, we bear forth his image and beauty and glory. And so, of course, it makes sense that some of the last verses of the Bible in Revelation 21 talks about the glory of the nations. Revelation 21, 24 through 26, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They, God's people, will bring into it, the new heavens and new earth, the glory and the honor of the nations. That means in the new heavens and new earth, when God, which is, by the way, described as a multitude of people that John can't even number. It's not a few people. It's all kinds of people from all kinds of times and places and cultures. And they will bring with them into that place all the beauty of their culture. I kind of think we're going to have French wine. I kind of think slash hope we're going to have Korean food. 
and German ingenuity and African textiles and New Orleans jazz and Houston Tex-Mex glory hallelujah. (laughs) The glory of all the nations in our cultures brought into the new heavens and the new earth. So Pentecost, which it is not, (laughs) it's not a coincidence, Pentecost, the feast of the harvest. At Pentecost, at the feast of the harvest, we see the kind of harvest that our God has in mind for his church. God desires a multicultural harvest from all the nations. So you know what we do with that? It means we do stuff like plant churches and go out into the world because that's what Jesus did for us. We go out to our neighbors to love them. This is what Jesus did for us when we were far away from him. Consider what God did, Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption, new family. God makes a new family of all kinds of cultures and people that he brings to himself. So what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit, final point, makes a new family. How? Fundamentally, by pointing this new family to its Savior and King, Jesus. It's interesting, this like crazy whirlwind thing is going on with fire, the Holy Spirit's been sent. You would imagine that the disciples would get up and start preaching a sermon about the Holy Spirit. But they don't. They preach about Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is to illumine our hearts to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit makes a home for him in our lives. One of my seminary professors said, the Holy Spirit is a homemaker. You know, in our culture, homemakers are often either denigrated or kind of treated as anonymous. But if you've been in a home that has a really great homemaker, you know that everything kind of falls apart without them. And what the Holy Spirit does is he makes a home for God in us. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. And then a couple verses later, he says, we will make our home. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. How does he make a home? Because we have the helper that Jesus is talking about. The helper who makes a home for God in us. And in doing that, in making a home in all these different kinds of people, he's making a new family for that home. And that's what we get to be, a new family. And the kind of family that we are proclaims to the world that they are welcomed in. And so let this be a place where all kinds of different people can find a home. What if that were true? I think it has been. I'm encouraged by ways that it has been. I want to encourage us to continue leaning into that. 
Because the church is a place where we are all kinds of people, people that you wouldn't expect to be family are family. We see that here throughout the rest of the New Testament. The church has Jews and Gentiles, Africans, Asians, Europeans, men, women, rich, poor, religious, pagan. Let the church bring together people from Houston and Dallas who love each other. The church can be a place with homeschool kids and public school kids and private school kids who love each other for jocks and geeks, for people who watch Fox News and people who watch CNN. For people who say caramel and people who say caramel. I don't know why they do that, but they do. For people who live inside the loop and outside the loop. For Longhorns and Aggies. What a witness that would be. (laughs) Why can we do this? All kinds of people, all kinds of cultures brought together because of the work of Jesus in our lives. Corey Ten Boom is another hero of mine. When World War II um, came and the Nazis overran Holland, the Ten Boom family hid Jewish refugees and members of the Dutch resistance inside their home. After some time, they were betrayed and the entire family was arrested and three of them died while imprisoned by the Nazis. Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück extermination camp for women. They were subjected to all kinds of things, to beatings, to starvation, to cold and wet, disease, and other horrible things. And Corey refers often to her sister Betsy, who was such a light in that place. But on December 1944 in Ravensbrook, Betsy died. And shortly thereafter, Corey and several other women were let out on a clerical error. It was really a miracle. A week after they got out of Ravensbrook, all the women in the camp were sent to a gas chamber. And Corey spent most of the rest of her life going around and speaking about God's forgiveness and grace. She tells of one particular story when she was in Munich. She writes, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me, As the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not 
on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Church, let's pray that the Spirit would bear his fruit in our lives because of the grace and work of Jesus for sinners like us. Let's be a family. Lord, we ask that you would make us your family and that you would make us a family to others who are not yet in our midst. Help us to be a family that when people come into our home that we have hospitality and love and kindness for the stranger in our midst because that's what you did for us. Would you do that work by your spirit in our lives for the good of this city, for your namesake and for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.